Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Pia Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, although you'd be forgiven for forgetting that because I've been skiving, leaving my poor colleagues to pick up the slack. Our arts editor, Lucy Dallas, foremost among them. Hello, Lucy, and thank you. No, not at all. Very (laughs) lovely to have you back. How are you doing? I'm all right. It's good to be back. Um, I didn't really need to come back because you've been doing a great job. Um, I really enjoyed last week's chat with um, with Irina Dimitrescu on on fitness. I mean, she's always great to have on, but the bit about sweat was pretty startling, that a person's sweaters is as unique as a fingerprint. It was good, wasn't it? It was really interesting. And I was thinking about it afterwards and I had been reading about it actually because we were talking about the the sort of biochemistry of sweat and that's that thing about it being unique and everybody's sweat is different and smells different to different mm. people and a guy that he transferred it from himself to someone else or vice versa yes or vice versa yeah and so that was the very the actual kind of physical bit of how it worked but I was thinking about the the sort of social and cultural ramifications of it because you know there's that that big sort of I don't know if it's lighthearted sort of discussion on Twitter that has been with all the Hollywood stars and a couple of them said, oh, we don't really wash very much because we like to have our natural oils. And then, you know, half half people said, well, that's disgusting. You should wash all the time. And the other half <laughs> went, no, it's great. You know, be a bit smelly and let your oils go and all of that. And I was reading because I was I remember saying um, last week with Irina, I was like, the moral of the story is don't wash. <laughs> and then I was, I was reading on Substack, which is a thing that we talked about the week before. And of course, um, there's a biochemical position, as it were, but socially and culturally, it's very different. It depends who you are. It's actually a very privileged thing to be able to say. Oh, yeah. oh I don't need to wash. Uh, I don't mind if, you know, my natural smell comes out because for a long time, and I hope not so much now, I mean, I very much hope not now, but you know, you can never be sure. For a long time, it used to be that if you weren't the absolute mainstream, which is to say if you weren't white, or if you're, you know, a traveller, or if in the UK, maybe if you were Irish, or, you know, if you're Jewish, or you didn't live with your parents, you know, any, any kind of person who was ever perceived as not, not quite the mainstream. There was a bit of a story, there was a bit of a sense that maybe you weren't weren't quite as clean as everybody else and there was a lot of there were people talking uh Rockstan Gay was talking about it and I thought it was Samantha Irby but then I couldn't find it when I looked at it again so maybe I made that up talking about how they felt that they had to wash much more mm. do you mm. know what I mean they had to be totally scrupulously clean and smelling of of of, of shampoo and and lotion and all of that all the time because the idea that they might be a bit smelly or a bit different or not quite as clean was very, very close to the surface. So they had to try, as of course they, they, they probably did in all lots of other ways, to try twice as hard yeah. 
So actually being able to say, oh yeah, I'm not going to have a shower. Um, I'm going to be a bit smelly and that's, you know, that's good. Because that also means everyone else has to put up with it. Yes. I just thought it was really interesting. There's, there's so many ways that you can look at it and sort of make a sort Well, I think, of- I think it must sort of intersect with, with the sort of history of diseases and the way that we've always grafted them onto, you know, select groups of people. During the 14th century plague in Italy, the Jewish communities were blamed uh, for spreading it because they wanted to eradicate Christianity. Yeah, and I bet everybody said they were unclean as well. Exactly. And later syphilis was, you know, for Germans, it was the French disease. For the French, it was the Neapolitan disease. For for the Neapolitans, it was French and, mm. and, and so on. But I suppose with cleanliness specifically in mind, there's the um, British colonists in, in in India in the 19th century considered cholera to be inherently Indian, inherently, you know, a product of an uncivilized and dirty way of life. And around the same time, mm. the Americans were blaming the exact same thing on the Irish and the Italians. It was, you know, the destitute, filthy migrants who, who yeah. poured off ships looking for work and their clothes were mm. were said to be saturated with with sickness. And mm. it's all it's all part of that, I suppose. Yes. And I suppose also the idea that that, that that cleanliness, you get you get close to the idea of cleanliness and then do you get purity and that, do you know what I mean? And then mm. it edges into all that that sort yeah, of thing. Exactly. So I just was thinking, you know, it's it, it, you can you can look at it from um, there's all sorts of ways put it that way of deciding whether or not to have a shower in the morning <laughs> <laughs> well then it depends who you are and what position you're in and exactly. you know, all of that sort of thing very interesting well um a quick reminder before we move on that podcast listeners uh, can and should take advantage of an exclusive offer on tls subscriptions it claims six issues for just five pounds or five dollars or the equivalent in whatever currency you use go to the hyphen tls .co.uk forward slash pod to find out more. Now, coming up on this week's show, Opera is back. Anna Picard will tell us all about the stylish and affecting production of Rigoletto, Verdi's opera without a hero. And would anybody like to own a lock of maybe Emily Dickinson's hair. Think carefully about how you answer that. But first, let's turn to The Inseparables, a new novel by Simone de Beauvoir just published, only about 70 years after the philosopher first wrote it. It's now freshly translated into English by Lauren Elkin and introduced by Deborah Levy, and the literary world is understandably quite excited about it all. Our writer, Sky Cleary, has reviewed it for us this week and joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Sky. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, can you tell us the story of how the manuscript came to be discovered? Because call me jaded, but we're quite used to being told that, you know, a long lost novel has finally been found, but it's often a bit of creative marketing perhaps it's more that it's just been translated into English but in this case it's it's true that the novella wasn't even available in French until last year right um so yeah it really is a lost novel um I'm not sure where it was exactly lost but it seems to have been caught up in uh Beauvoir's papers and, and letters somewhere and actually apparently in um the big library in France there's like a bunch of um boxes of a lot of Beauvoir's like manuscripts that haven't actually been archived and, and that people are starting to work through so um there's a fair bit of Beauvoir's writing that hasn't actually uh, still hasn't been released yet and so this was one of those manuscripts that I, I believe it was sort of found in amongst some other papers and it was a book that or it's a novella, so it's a novella that um, Beauvoir was really hesitant to publish during her lifetime um, for for a number of reasons. And so she um, sort of parked it because it was so close to her heart and it was based on a true story. Um, And so there was was a lot of hesitancy about, uh, about whether to publish it and because she also didn't know the full true story of, of what she was talking about. It was written in, in 1954. Um, and as you say, there were, she was hesitant. She didn't want to publish it in her lifetime. And you mentioned in the piece that 
This may partly have been down to Sartre's snide comment about it, and also because she didn't quite know the full story. So maybe you could shed a little bit more light on what that full story is. Yeah, sure. Um, so this happened in, um, so it was about the friendship of, of two girls, you know, Simone de Beauvoir and her best friend, um, Elizabeth Lecoin, or it was, you know, she calls her Elizabeth Zaza. So the story is, it's fictionalized, but but not much. Um, it's a story that um, Beauvoir talked about also in her memoirs, memoirs of a dutiful daughter and some of her fictional work as well. Um, but she she was really distraught about her friend. Uh, sorry, I think I might have to give a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. That's it. We don't have a we don't have a jazzy sound effect for it. Just have to say <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> um, so her friend um, died at a very tragic death at the age of 21. And um, so this was in 1929. And the friendship was so, such um, an influential part of Beauvoir's life. You know, Beauvoir adored this, this girl, um, this teenager who she met at age nine. And part of this writing is Beauvoir processing her friend's death. And she struggled with the story for, for a long time, writing about it in various places. And then she kept coming back to, to writing a full uh, story about it. But, you know, she, because she didn't know the full story until after her memoir was published and um, one of Zaza's younger sisters um, read the memoir and realised what an impact Zaza had had on Beauvoir's life. And so told her what the full story was. But then, as, as you mentioned, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre, didn't really like the book because it is, um, you know, a sad book in many ways, but it's also, you know, a, a very beautifully written book. Um, it's it's an ode to friendship in many ways because Beauvoir is, is celebrating, you know, the life of this really beautiful person that she met. Um, and, you know, Sartre dismissed it, I think, as um, saying, you know, he wasn't interested in hearing about someone's life who was so, so sad and short. It's quite interesting in terms of we get a sort of glimpse of a of a potential rival philosophical power uh, couple to Beauvoir and Sartre themselves almost. Yeah, and I think even after Zaza's death, there is a lot of latent um, uh, philosophizing going on. And in fact, after I read The Inseparables, I went back to The Second Sex and read, there's a chapter called The Girl, and it's all about adolescence and, and growing up and, and the challenges that um, teenage girls face. So the book is about um, Sylvie, who's based on Simone de Beauvoir, um, almost watching her, her friend Andre um, face these incredible challenges of life. And now Andre is from a well-off middle-class family and very Catholic, and she's being groomed to be married off. And she has sisters and she's helping um, her sisters be married off to, to um, people of her parents' choosing. And so it's about Andre's growth through these challenges and Andre being torn apart between doing what she's expected to do. Like she, she loves her mother very much and she's very devout and she doesn't want to upset God. And so she's trying to fit in and, and do these social duties, these family duties, but also she has this vivacious desire to, to be her own person, to have her own friends, to practice the violin. She wants to study and she, she convinces her parents to let her go to the Sorbonne, but she finds there are these competing demands and her sleep suffers, you know, but at the Sorbonne, Bouba says, you know, she's, she turns up and she's exhausted in classes and she's sleeping in classes because she's, she's trying to juggle all these things. So the main story is that, Andre at the Sorbonne meets a man called, um, his name is Pascal Blondel, and he's based on Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And in real life, Zaza and Maurice did fall in love. So what happens is that they get engaged. So Andre and um, Pascal get engaged, but they know it's kind of a scandal because Pascal is like almost an outsider, but he's also from a, a decent family, or so they thought. Um, and so they decide not to um, get married straight away. And Beauvoir, or also um, Sylvie in the book, is like so confused about this. And she's like, why, why, if, if they love each other, 
why wouldn't they just want to get married as soon as possible? Because she saw it really was a genuine kind of love. And this is something that Deirdre Bear talks about in her biography of Simone de Beauvoir. And so the real story is that Zaza and Maurice, or in the book, it's um, Andre and Pascal, they do get engaged. Well, in the book, sorry, in the book, they don't get engaged, but in real life, they do, but they, they put it off. And what happens in real life is that Zaza's father, he knows how um, persuasive and, and strong-willed Zaza is, so he he starts to investigate um, Maurice Merleau-Ponty um, in order to figure out if he's okay for her to marry, if he's okay to, to you know, bring into the family. And what they find is kind of a scandal. He hires a private investigator who finds out that, in fact, Maurice Merleau-Ponty's mother is married to a person who isn't Maurice's father. And so the, she's had this very long-term affair with uh, a very well-known, very highly respected professor. And he um, takes care of the children, but to protect the mother, um, they the children have taken on the name of the person that Maurice's mother is married to. So this is very complicated. It's a very it's a very convoluted story and and very very full of of of, of scandal. But it, it shows so well that in this story, I mean, both in real life and in in the veiled fictionalization of it, social expectations are the the real antagonists. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Andre and, and Zaza's life, I mean, it's they're extremely highly regulated. And Sylvie sort of there like reflecting on on these social expectations. And of course, Sylvie, like Beauvoir didn't have a dowry. So she was expected to go off and work for a living. And Sylvie says in the book, you know, I am, I often congratulated myself you know, egoistically that that bad luck had ruined my father. And so she's she's like grateful that she had to go out and work, or she was going to be expected to go out and work because the novel finishes at, at uh, university. Um, and she says, you know, the problems that tormented Andre didn't concern me. Um, which is that, you know, her parents force her to break up with these people that she's absolutely in love with. And, and it really, it tears her apart. Which is clearly why um, Simone de Beauvoir, when she was writing this novel and, and for the rest of her life, I think, felt this survivor's guilt, I suppose, a, a guilt at having gone on to lead such a, ri- a rich life that her friend couldn't. There's the, the dedication to this book, which is for her friend, Cesar. Um, and she says, if there are tears in my eyes tonight, is it because you are no longer alive or because I am? It's it's incredibly, um, it's very moving. It is. And in fact, um, the memoirs of a dutiful daughter in which Beauvoir had written about um, Zaza, she, she sort of ends the memoir saying, um, we had fought together against the revolting fate that had lain ahead of us. And for a long time, I believed that I had paid for my own freedom with her death. So Zaza and Andre die of either encephalitis or meningitis. They're not really sure. Um, but Beauvoir sees it really as, as a murder of God, of of mother of um, actually Maurice Merleau-Ponty at the time. She, she thinks these people have actually murdered Zaza's spirit and Beauvoir had tried to, to rescue um, her in, in, in many ways. She tried to be you know, a great friend. She'd gone and spoken with Maurice Merleau-Ponty directly saying, what's going on? Why can't you just marry her? If she like, if you don't marry her now, she, it's going to tear her apart. You know, she, I don't know that she'll survive. And so Beauvoir had a strong sense of this. And I think it's just, she saw Zaza slipping away and it was it was really devastating for her and, and not knowing that the parents had kind of blackmailed them into breaking up made, made it even worse. It's extraordinary that she that she took that so strongly that she thought her friend had been destroyed and basically killed by them because if you know if it was encephalitis or meningitis or whatever it was, I, I'm sure that she saw that the social expectations had crushed. Uh, you say this, I think, in the piece, don't you? Crushed her friend, but that—that's not, you know, that—that's that, not the illness that killed her. But she put those two together very strongly, then, didn't she? Yeah, she she certainly did. Um, and it was also, I think, part of her inspiration for talking about, you know, in the second sex when she talks about how, you know, adolescence is a time when you know, we start to face adulthood and 
you know, start grasping the freedom and responsibility that comes with it. And we start breaking away from, from this childhood servitude and, and our ignorance and question the meanings that are being provided to us. So this puberty for Zaza and, and Simone de Beauvoir was an absolute crisis. And, and she thought that it's not just like the, the fact that Zaza was so torn apart by these social expectations would have at least if she hadn't have been torn apart by them, I mean, perhaps at least she would have had, you know, a happy life. But as it was, she was so uh, miserable and, and despondent and, and thought God was against her. And, and in the book, Sylvie says, you know, it had, because um, Sylvie kind of loses her religion during her teenage years. And she said, you know, it would have been so much easier for Andre and, and Zaza if she had sort of lost her, her belief in God. She wouldn't have been you know, tearing herself apart so much in order to, to please everybody else. And, and the, the friendship is so strong and her attachment is so strong that I know that some people have thought that this was a love story kind of basically between the two girls, but you don't really think that, do you? Not in the sense that it's a romantic love story. I think people can read romantic or sexual love into it. And, and certainly in the second sex, Beauvoir talks about how adolescent girls, when, when they're growing up, they can be very you know sexually attracted to their friends. But I don't know, I'm not... I don't know. I'm I'm not convinced in 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 the novel that it's there because I, I see that Beauvoir is so excited about the friendship and she finds this friendship so rich. I mean, it's it's validating these friends, um, Sylvie and Andre. They they reassure each other. They they listen to one another. They help one another feel heard and valued that they, they respect one another so it's the gaze, this really valuable gaze of the other that they weren't getting from from their parents who are always kind of looking down on them and scolding them and they were very supportive of each other you know they really found comfort through talking about their problem I mean not all of their problems but talking about a lot of their problems and what really came through from, for me in the inseparables was how this kind of great friendship can can challenge people with new ideas and insights. And for example, um, Beauvoir and Zaza and, and in the novel, Sylvie and Andre were, were academically very competitive and but they kind of rose above that rivalry to become almost almost muses for, for one another and, and challenged each other in, in really constructive ways and, and discovered the world together. I, I suppose perhaps because of that, um, because at the, the kind of heart of their relationship is, um, you know, their engagement in, as it is described, real conversations, people who approach this novel might be expecting it to be a sort of vehicle for for the philosophy of existentialism. But from what you're describing, it seems that the, the scene between de Beauvoir the novelist and de Beauvoir the philosopher isn't really there. You don't, you don't feel it. it. It marries well. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap. I mean, I don't think she, so Beauvoir the philosopher, I mean, this, I think she was inspired by her experience with Zaza. And if you, if you look at her philosophy, Beauvoir's philosophy of love, I mean, it's really based on deep friendship in a way. I mean, it's friendship plus, you know, sexual attraction, but one of her core concepts of, of intersubjectivity, which is mutual respect and recognition for another person that underpins all authentic relationships. I mean, that's what she had with Zaza. Um, and it wasn't necessarily um, exactly equal. Like, so Beauvoir was much more passionate about Zaza than Zaza was about her. But still, this is one of Beauvoir's key points about friendship. Like, it doesn't need to be exactly equal. The people don't need to be, you know, oh, I'm, I, I love you, therefore you have to love me. It's like, it's, it's a, a, an authentic relationship is based on freedom and freedom to explore the world in, in their own ways. And, and, I see Beauvoir and, and Sylvie in the novel giving Andre that kind of freedom, you know, being there to support them, wanting the best for the other person. Um, on a parting note, then, I suppose the, the translator, uh, Lauren Elkin, seems to sum things up quite well. She says, um, so is it any good, people have asked me when I've told them I'm translating a lost novel by Simone de Beauvoir, and I'm relieved to say, yes, it is more than good. It is poignant, chilling and eviscerating. It sounds like you very strongly agree with this. 
I 100% agree. I highly recommend it. And I think it is a really good introduction to existentialism because it does deal with themes of freedom versus responsibility and self-determination and and fulfilling our our social duties and what what we owe to other people and how we can support other people and be great friends. So yeah, I highly recommend it. Right. Well, we will have to leave it there. Sky Cleary, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Thea. Still to come on the show, the politics of Emily Dickinson's hair and back to the opera at last for Verdi's despairing tale of power, its violent abuses and paternal heartbreak. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we get to the Royal Opera House and its impressive version of Verdi's Rigoletto, I wanted to point to an interesting story I found on LitHub a couple of days ago by Jen de Gregorio. It's entitled An Alleged Lock of Emily Dickinson's Hair is Selling for $450,000. But was it stolen? Uh, you've read it too now, haven't you, Lucy? <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated. It's, it's plaited, shall we say. But it's, so it's part, <laughs> it's part whodunit. Um, going back to this night in the 1940s where the poet James Merrill, who was he was a student at Amherst at the time, uh, he and a couple of friends broke into Emily Dickinson's old house where her niece was living at the time. And they don't use the word stole at any point. And, uh, but a small mirror and a page of a manuscript and possibly a book, an 1890s edition of, of Dickinson's poems, which contained possibly these two locks of hair. One of the first problems I have with this yes. is that, well, no, actually there's lots of problems. The first one is that they broke into someone's house and stole some stuff. That's the first <laughs> yeah. most obvious problem. Uh, but I mean, they said, you know, it was a homage and all of that, but still they broke into someone's house. But then there's these, there's a picture of these two locks of hair and one of them is clearly quite blonde and one of them is mm. clearly quite dark brown. So I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. saying they can't both be Emily Dickinson's hair. And then someone else said she had red hair. Yeah, so her well, the I think I think one of the locks is kind of auburn, and that is supposedly her hair. 
and we use supposedly for you know reasons that we'll go into in a minute mm. but supposedly Emily Dickinson's hair and the other one which is which is very blonde um is her nephews is the story is 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 that it is her nephews oh, I, I don't know why that. I thought they were kind of touting them both around going she'd had highlights yeah exactly <laughs> but no so there's all of that going on but at the heart of it I think one of the things that's really interesting about it is the kind of the uncomfortable politics of it all you know the idea that these men um because the reason that it's it's all come to light again is because an English professor no less uh is now selling this some of this hair uh, for four hundred and fifty thousand dollars on on eBay. It's all very very weird, but it's just this idea of these men just buying and selling Emily Dickinson's maybe hair. You know, Emily Dickinson, a woman famed for her desire to yeah. shun in a way, you know, the physical and the bodily, and to just be free yeah. of of this kind of of control. And it's just very it, weird. It is odd, and especially when you think that it it is sort of a bit of her body that yeah. they broke in and stole. I suppose a bit of context. So it's not it's not really context. They used to do it in the 19th century much more, give hair for keepsakes. I mean, and I remember in the, um, there's a museum in Paris, the Museum of Paris, Carnavalle, which is a wonderful place. And that's got a lock of Robespierre's hair, which I was always really fascinated by. But it's true that people did used to do that all the time. They'd take, you know, they'd send each other uh, locks of their hair and they'd put it in lockets or in rings. They did. And that wasn't just uh, women. So uh, I got, shall I give you an impromptu quiz? Yeah, go on. Oh, God, no. Well, I won't be able to answer it. I'm terrible (laughs) at quizzes. I immediately panic. I'm, it's completely it's completely unfair because I'm just reading you out this because I just happened to have read about it 10 minutes ago. Go on, you're going to do it anyway. All right, then whose <laughs> locks of hair do you think you could see? I think you can see them on display. They're certainly there. Now, let's say, you know, out of the sort of late 19th century, from the Romantics onwards, maybe even, at the, in the New York Public Library, who have they got? Have a couple of guesses. In the New York Public Library. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I mean, I don't know if they're like right on display as soon as you get there. They might be, you know, in the archives. I mean, I have absolutely no idea. Romantics. <laughs> think about English romantics. Keats. Nearly. Um, not quite. I mean, not quite Keats. <laughs> no, so just... this is really unfair of me. What words? There are women. There are oh. women. Oh. Um, oh, I don't know, Lucy. Okay. Mary Shelley. I was going to say that and then I thought, no, it just seems very unlikely somehow. But I suppose not because it was fashionable. Apparently, they've got locks of hair from Mary Shelley. I mean, there's no way of knowing, is it? No, but it's well, and sometimes they say there's authentication because it's passed down through the family. Apparently, they got Charlotte Bronte. You can't tell. You can't tell because if you if you cut hair, you can only DNA um, get the DNA from hair, I think, if it's been pulled out with the you yes know, that's right from the roots. you can't just take yeah, it yeah. from the hair itself yes yes and the authentication is a member of the family saying oh yes this was my great uncle and he definitely got it from you know whoever else anyway apparently they've got mary shelley i mean among others thackeray there you go oh charlotte bronte walt whitman mm-hmm. um and beethoven oh and then there's a rather sad story about beethoven that i read so so it said taking a lock of hair was was not an uncommon thing to do shortly after beethoven's death wig or real hair i think actual hair and this is from the from the nypl's website shortly after beethoven's death in 1827 many visitors took a clipping of the composer's hair so that by the time of his funeral most of his hair had been removed <laughs> oh dear I know. and you, there's also in the new york public library which is uh, that's not the only place it's just where i happen to see some of these things <laughs> They've got a, at least one bit of Shelley's skull. Oh, yeah, I know. So it's so the thing about the sort of obsession with bodily parts. Wait, Mary Shelley or Percy Bish? Percy Bish. Oh, and there's there's some bit of um, it was I think it was Trelawney, maybe had got it, and he thought he might give it to Byron. I'm probably getting this wrong. Everyone, write in and tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> he thought I might give it to Byron because Byron was his great friend, and then he remembered that Byron had boasted about either having done or wanting to use a skull as a goblet. So he thought, oh, I'm not giving it to Byron because, you know. <laughs> you know how that'll end. Exactly. So he 
probably very wisely didn't give it to Byron. Oh dear. So th- th- none of this is to defend breaking into someone's house and stealing their stuff and then trading a you know as you say a famously private woman's hair about on the on the uh, on the interweb as it were. But there is a there is a there There's is a history. A, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I ended up going down a bit of a rabbit hole as well. Who did um, you find? Do do a horrible quiz on me. Well, to, I, to make I, I it wouldn't even. I wouldn't be so cruel, but um <laughs> Uh, apparently an x-ray of Hemingway's foot after it had been battered by the Italian on the Italian front uh, an x-ray of Hemingway's foot fetched you know tens of thousands of, of dollars really? we know that anything that Sylvia Plath has touched or yes. reputedly touched or breathed on yeah. um, goes for you know hundreds of thousands oh. but apparently also um, J.D. Salinger's Lou oh. fetched a good price well that's odd isn't it <laughs> it's odd but it's, it's, it's interesting because these things it's both they're both understandable and yet utterly ridiculous, aren't they? But you can't help but feel, we've all felt it when you, when you go into, you know, a writer's house, Monk's house in Sussex or Henry Rise, you can't help but feel that you want to touch something that they might have touched, even though it says, please do not oh, touch yeah. <laughs> really, really prominently. It just makes you feel like you might be closer somehow. Yeah. And it's very moving, actually, sometimes to be in the places where they were. Yeah. And to think, oh, you know, they were they were in these actual physical walls. Yeah. The 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 the, the um, French Revolution bit in the in the museum that I was saying in in Paris, it's got Robespierre's, it's got a bit of hair, but it's also got like his knife and fork, which suddenly makes him like a person. Yeah. <laughs> you know what you mean? Not yeah, like a kind person of person with with kind of bodily functions. Yeah. And 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 they've got Danton's brush or something, and you think, oh, he brushed his hair while he was thinking about, you know, <laughs> what to do next. Um. It's very powerful, I think. It is. I suppose that this particular Emily Dickinson story seems to me to reach the, you know, it's apotheosis of, of ridiculousness when um, this English professor who's who's trying to flog this maybe Dickinson hair uh, for 450,000. I keep on saying that number. Just no, it is a big number. get my head around it. But he says, I sold a few Robert Frosts to pay for it. And just the idea that you would sell these rare volumes of of actual work. I thought it meant Robert Frost's hair, not <laughs> his, no, his hair, actual his books, book. but you would sell actual work for just these bits of probably stolen, unidentifiable, really, um, bodily matter. It just is silly. <laughs> Now, in the various lockdowns, all the live arts were more or less silenced, but now happily they are more or less back, including, you might say, one of the loudest voices, i.e. opera. The Royal Opera House is open again, back with a bang, with a new season, starting with a new production of one of the classics, Rigoletto, which has a great big tune that everyone can whistle. I know people always say that, but La Donna Mobile really is one of the ones that everyone knows. And it's got a vengeful, hunchback... Um, horrible womanizing noblemen an innocent young woman evil plots trickery and twists it sounds spectacular and it is but there's um a lot to unpack in there uh, as well as a lot of darkness um anna picard saw the show for us and we're delighted that she's joined us to talk about it today anna thanks very much for coming on thank you for having me um and first of all just as a general experience what was it like going back to the opera house indoors it was very very strange I have to say I think it's going to take a long time before this feels like a normal thing again because the last time I was there was for the um the last new production uh before the first lockdown which was uh Fidelio and the atmosphere yes it was pretty feverish I would say uh, obviously not in the literal sense no let's hope not <laughs> oh dear um, <laughs> And, um, you know, for those who are concerned about these things, uh, on the first night, I'd estimate that perhaps 50% of the audience, um, including me, was masked. And did they, did, they, did they ask for it as a general requirement or was that sort of just I voluntary? I think that there was an announcement just before curtain went up. But uh, I've got to say, I was so, so excited and, and, and so uh, mildly freaked out by the whole thing that, 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 that I wasn't paying a great deal of attention. And I probably would have put it on just anyway, just because you get used to having them on. So let's go to Rigoletto. Um, can you tell us about the, the plot of it, where where it came from and sort of how it evolved a little bit? Well, it's uh, based on a play from 1832 
by Victor Hugo uh, called Le Roi Samuse, uh, which was banned after only one performance in Paris. Um, uh, Verdi, I believe, uh, described it as uh, the, the, the greatest drama he could imagine and was particularly fascinated by the character of Triboulet, the court jester, who in uh, this version, uh, Rigoletto from 1851, uh, becomes Rigoletto. And so he had to sort of change it a bit to get it past the censors, didn't he? Because they didn't like the idea that the king was um, a bad lot and easily led into evil ways kind of thing. Uh, that was pretty standard practice, actually, for the Italian censors um, uh, during most of Verdi's career. And I had forgotten what a horrible story it is. Very dark and grotesque. There's the almost inevitable death of a beautiful young woman. No comeuppance at all for the powerful man. And a kind of viper's nest of conniving and plotting. And you say in your piece, there is no hero in Rigoletto, no redemption, no revolution, no sunlight. Yes, I think this is one of the one of the things that makes the opera so extraordinary, and it's definitely a turning point in in terms of Verdi's uh, development as a dramatist. And you can, regardless of the setting that uh, you know is is nominally in um, 16th century Mantua, these things still happen. There are so many you know ex- examples just from you know recent press, and um, I wouldn't be at all surprised if someone somewhere decides to stage a Rigoletto that's you know Jeffrey Epstein or something like that. But it's um, it doesn't go away, and it is the beginning of realism in opera. And I think the fact that there is no redemption is what makes it realistic. People do terrible things, and they get away with them. And it's well, it's it's yes, in that that sense, it's it's realistic that there's no, you know, there there is no sort of comeuppance for anyone really, other than I suppose it's it's Rigoletto who is who is punished, isn't it, for his hypocrisy? I suppose. I think, I, yeah, I think that's valid. Um, well, I mean, the the, the whole uh, business of the abduction of Gilda is because um, he has uh, taunted uh, the uh, Count Ciprano for, for for being a cuckold, for being cuckolded by the Duke. Um, and the other aspect to that, the the, the one where you could perhaps uh, apply a more sort of um, hand of fate. Uh, explanation to his sorrow at the end is because he mocked uh, Monterone, um, whose uh, daughter we first encounter in the first scene. She's silent, but she's been disgraced. And in this production, she is pregnant and part of this amazing opening tableau. Um, And this very gruesome story is full of these great big tunes. As you say, I read that, um, you can tell me whether this is true, perhaps. I read that Verdi banned the orchestra and the cast from humming or whistling La Donna Immobile before the premiere, because he knew it would be a hit. He didn't want it to be copied. Do, do we think that's true or is that folklore, do you reckon? I don't, I don't know. I've actually never heard that before. Um, it seems to me to be probably uh, entirely believable that you'd not want you know, your, any hint of your next hit coming out before it actually hits the stage. It's quite a strange aspect of the work, though, isn't it, this... I mean, especially for modern viewers, how how warmly received these numbers are in spite of the malignancy of, of their message. It's quite an effective way of making us all complicit in the moral corruption of it, having us all sing along and, and enjoy the, the song. That is a really um, interesting point. Yeah. And I, I think that you can hear that. He develops it in his next opera, which is uh, La Traviata, um, in in the, the the music of the you know the party goers and the demi monde um, who eventually just um, leave Violetta to die. Um, it, it, that's all very sort of upbeat and very catchy and 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 sort of careless. And I I, I think he tends to use popular forms to illustrate a kind of moral vacuity. I mean, even as far back as his um, um, uh, very sort of harem scarum plot that he, he did Giovanna d'Arco, uh, a Joan of Arc. He has uh, devils singing in singing a sort of tarantella. And I think it was it was um, it was disapproved of by some people at the time, wasn't it? Because it had these numbers, and as you said, like dance music and sort of rollicking scenes. I think the, 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 as far as I'm aware, the, the main objection actually was was to the idea of having a you know a deformed um, hero, not that he is particularly a hero or anti-hero, to to to, to actually uh, um, present uh, uh, deformity on stage. 
it was thought not to be appropriate for the lyric stage. Right. So that was the thing that offended them rather than <laughs> any of the behaviour going on. Uh, I think what he did um, was very consciously play with the whole kind of high culture, low culture thing, um, which I think all successful, all, all of the most successful uh, opera creators, composers do. Um, so, I mean, don't forget, we're, we're, we're in the age of, 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 of freak shows anyway. So uh, um, it, it, it's quite prissy, really. Um, to object to uh, seeing somebody with, we don't know whether it's kyphosis or scoliosis, but to see that as the central character and the kind of the moral crux of an opera. And what then is this new production like? Does it bring out the complexity, I mean, musically and, and dramatically? Musically, absolutely. I mean, it's quite fantastic, actually. I think that... Um, this could just be my own projection here, but I am pretty certain that the uh, the way in which Papano had uh, shaped Fidelio 18 months ago, uh, and that's a notoriously difficult score because of the spoken um, because of the spoken dialogue in between the musical moments. The way he managed to get that sort of symphonic arc in the Beethoven also seems to inform. Uh, the colours and the arc in uh, the Verdi. Uh, it's, it's a numbers opera. There are clear numbers. And uh, particularly on the first night, there was really, really intense, really enthusiastic reception for each of those numbers. But it somehow didn't interrupt the sense of propulsion, the sense of inevitability to, to, to the tragedy. It, it, it was quite beautifully conducted so as you say it's got it has essentially as you say it's got numbers it's got hits in it but and the, and, and the difficulty is that you don't that doesn't just stop what everything that's going on and everyone looks around and goes oh go oh, hang on where were we it was that that that, that he was negotiating uh, honestly i don't even remember the interval i've got to say because it it it, it just felt you were carried along so successfully. And what about what about the staging? What did it look like? Um, and you said it's it was conducted beautifully. Uh, how was the singing? I imagine it was pretty good. Yes, it was excellent. I, I mean, uh, this is Oliver Mears's uh, first production that he's directed since he was appointed director of opera in 2016, and it's a massive shift in the budget that he can play with uh, because he came to the Royal Opera House from Northern Ireland Opera. Um, and before that, he'd been, he was a founder of um, a, a little fringe group called Second Movement. Um, I couldn't possibly calculate the maths on the difference between his productions of, you know, Hansel and Gretel and Dutchman or Tosca with uh, Northern Ireland Opera and, and, and this, but, but, but the designs are absolutely spectacular. It's very, um, uh, heavy baroque with extraordinary um, uh, overblown reproductions of Titian, an opening tableau which 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 quotes uh, uh, Caravaggio, and spectacular lighting um, by Fabiana Piccioli, who's really embracing the whole uh, chiaroscuro thing. In terms of the singing, um, it's the, the most outstanding uh, it, it work is from uh, Lisette Oropesa, who's a Cuban-American soprano, who's got that girlish sort of spin in the voice. I mean, she convinces as a young girl um, uh, and is perfectly idiomatic. You know, she's got all the control to, 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 to deliver the most tiny sort of filigree detail of um, coloratura, but there's also a, a, a tremendous sort of natural e expressivity to her singing. And Alvarez as uh, as Rigoletto, I mean, it helps. He's got a head the size of an old fashioned uh, TV set. <laughs> so his, his, the resonating chambers okay. that are available to him are extraordinary. I mean, it's it's a little bit like you know Jesse Norman had had that kind of resonance in her spell. You mean into just in terms of power and 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 resonance? Yeah, in terms of power and resonance behind the mask, as they used to say about singing, um, and and that sort of I think he's I think he was actually very very sophisticated in the way he handled this because the first big monologue it, it, it is a litany. These are not thoughts that have occurred to Rigoletto for the very first time. Um, you can sense that he's been uh, 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 complaining of, of feeling cursed by God, 
for his pain, for his deformity, um, for most of his life. The only thing that has changed is the curse delivered by Monterone at the end of the Act One party. So when he's pleading with the Cortes in his second great monologue, Cortegiani, um, then he sounds desperate, then he sounds immediate, and it's uh, absolutely harrowing. I mean, the costumes, and I'm, I'm basing this entirely on the picture that we have to illustrate your piece, uh, they look incredible as well. There's a real, really captures the darkness of it all, the black crushed velvet, Rigoletto this is, and, and a kind of a blood red rough, and his face, the makeup seems almost kind of Joker-esque. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, I, I gave them the benefit of the doubt on that, on that makeup. I, I, I like to think it wasn't a reference necessarily to, you know, the Joker, as in, you know, Batman and the Joker. I like to think it was actually another Victor Hugo reference to um, uh, L'Homme qui rit. Oh, right. And, and he's got a kind of rictus or has he got a scar? Is that a scar? Uh, the, the impression I get from having read it is that it's, it, it, it has healed open, if you see what I mean. So this is, this is uh, the character, is it, is it Guillaume or something like that, who, 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 is, who is mutilated as a, as a child so that the smile is extended, you know, literally ear to ear. And here in this one, it sort of goes up on one side and down on the other slightly. Yes, yes, yes. It's, it's very twisted. I, I should add that he does actually revert to modern dress. Um, immediately oh, really? after that, yes, yes, he does. Interesting. Yes. So standard gangster wear, you know. Um, think sort of, you know, Dolce and Gabbana photo shoot in an impoverished area of um, Sicily. <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, if you want um, power and horror and all of that, um, then the, then um, that's what's on at the Opera House at the moment. Yes, but opera audiences love a bit of horrible. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, most of the great operas are essentially horrible. Yes, yes. <laughs> that's what we thrive on. In terms of plot, yeah, of course they are. Yeah, they're horrible and then, and then they are expressed very, very beautifully. Okay, well, if you want to see a horrible opera, <laughs> go to the Royal Opera House. Horrible in the best is it the best sense of the word is that the right way of saying it oh i would say so yeah <laughs> okay then that's the one to go and see um anna picard many thanks for joining us thank you is all we have time for this week our thanks go to sky cleary and anna picard thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.